0: Welcome to The Long Game. My goal with this show and guests is to learn how to build self-sustaining companies and to explore the ideas, principles, and technology to make it all happen. I hope you learn something and enjoy. I think the, probably the best way to introduce you, Mark, is how you kind of said it yourself is you make my co-founder sweat and uh, be sore and swear. So
1: why don't you introduce yourself in your own words? Uh, my name is Mark Bransky. I am the owner of Bransky Fitness, appropriately titled, and I'm an independent trainer in the mean streets of northern california and I spend a lot of my time having a good time with clients, making them sweat and making them earn their gains. I think the having a good time is actually
0: very true. I don't think you always think of having a good time with a personal trainer, but you know one of the things that was interesting when I met you is that you really know your business, you know, the body, you know how to move and and help people in that regard. But also there's a certain amount of how you show up in that space, how you show up from a mindset perspective, how you show up from an attitude perspective and genuinely have relationships. Do you think that piece is unique to you? Is that essential for personal movement, personal fitness, or is that just kind of a, the Mark Bransky special?
1: When it comes to personal training, like a lot of different uh, jobs. There's no one way to eat a Reese's. There's there's a lot of ways to run a business that is successful, and a big part of what makes businesses successful or independent training businesses successful is how well the trainer um, incorporates themselves and their personality in their business, um, and so a part of kind of leading towards that success of having good, productive, efficient, and safe sessions is kind of knowing your own strengths and what you bring to the table, both in knowledge, but especially in personality and through a lot of trial and error, kind of copying other people's styles uh, and then realizing what works and what doesn't. I've just come to a certain level of authenticity where I can be myself, uh, have a good time, tell a bunch of bad jokes, but also get a lot of work done. And I think that um, high level of structured effort in a relaxed social environment tends to just be my style and it works really well for me. I think it's
0: actually pretty cool. I mean, we were talking about, obviously, this is more on a business and entrepreneurship podcast. You are a solopreneur, right? You've started your own business. But even, even that aspect right there, there's a lot of focus right now on founder led sales, which is start a company, whether it's a tech startup or it's whatever enterprise you're doing. And the best salesperson is always going to be you for a very long period in your time, in in your company. And actually you'll probably always be the best salesperson in your company. But at some point you reach the scale where there's, there are other things that maybe are higher value in return for what you're doing. And really what you're saying is like, there's no right way to build a personal fitness brand. It's be you be authentic, and then to show up. And obviously, you need to know your stuff and get your stuff done. Um, But that authenticity, I think, really is so critical, especially in this day and age where we have so much noise, so much social media, pushing in from all sides about this is how you should be. This is how you should look. This is what you should say. This is what you should do. So I think human nature, we're pushing back on that and saying, hey, no, we just want people to be their weird, wacky, wild selves,
1: but just be you. Just do you. Absolutely uh, I am online, I am on Instagram and uh, that's pretty much the only social media that I do but what is incredibly common is a very high level of engaging pictures, images, video of either people exercising or in a lot of the people that I follow trainers working with clients and I just I think the engine of engagement for social media, puts into a lot of either clients or people that want to engage in general fitness, this expectation, a certain expectation that is really just not the same as what it's like when you're just there at the gym, just grueling it out. Um, Some people will have this expectation that it's all going to be glamorous, fireworks are going to shoot off behind you when you're doing Bulgarian split squats, or it's going to be just the most dreaded hateful thing that you're ever going to do. And that's just people kind of looking at that industry and participation through the guise of often social media. And when you're just there in the gym, it has a different kind of pace to it and experience to it. And so I think a lot of my um, communicating with potential clients, people that may be interested in personal training, as an avenue to you know make them feel better, is to establish what an appropriate expectation of what a session is. Otherwise, they're just going to have you know an ulterior idea in their head that one way or another just may not be accurate. So I try and communicate what a you know what an appropriate expectation of what the journey is going to be like.
0: What would be. A way in which you communicate that expectation, and then, you know, the other aspect that is that is huge in what you do is education. So, how do you set those expectations, and then also show up in the communication and education of them while you're doing the sessions?
1: Uh, really, from the beginning uh, with my marketing, I tell people it's roughly just the total duration, um, the, the su- suggested frequency by which they should train, how long they should train. Uh, it's not going to happen in a couple of minutes. It's going to take months. As well, there are different forms of exercise that I'll get into from flexibility to core to resistance. So as much as I can, I'll try and communicate what we do, how we do it, uh, what the experience is likely going to be on your end, soreness, discomfort, probably some bitching and moaning, but overall, you should feel better. And over time, there's going to be competencies that you will acquire you could call them skills you'll get better at the thing that you do and the performance will increase and so we're not we don't have uh instruction manuals people go to school for a very long time when it comes to the medical community and things of that nature to try and understand the body so we're complex and then endeavoring in overload and challenge uh, analog challenge when it comes to exercise, it's very confusing. And if if clients or just your regular participants don't have an accurate expectation of what the process is going to feel like and what they're going to perhaps yield in the end after they've marinated for a while, they tend to just opt out. Um, either they try and work harder than they need to, and that's going to be frustrating, so they opt out or they don't work out hard enough. They don't know how to hit that sweet spot. Um, And so something, the the other kind of component that we were kind of talking about before is the importance of consistency. Uh, For me as an entrepreneur, if I wanna grow my business, I have to choose particular tasks and be consistent with it. Um, And the clients too, it's not gonna happen in one day. You're gonna have to basically do it for a long time. And it's the consistency part that is probably the most important. I mean, to answer your question, I feel like I rambled a little bit, oh, but there no, may be some perfect. nuggets there. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of rambling on this podcast, and it, it, it's how good ideas percolate, right? So, uh, I mean, there's there's the obvious answer here, but I want to ask a question anyway. Yeah, what do you see your role being in relationship with your clients? So, there's obviously the physical element, but what do you see as the all encompassing aspect of
1: a personal trainer? I like to be a really fantastic tour guide or docent um, or to, I get to be weird about it, kind of like shaman, because I don't do any of the exercise for the person. I don't do any of the eating, any of the diet. I don't actively participate in the efforts necessary to yield the result. I have to communicate with how I'm moving uh, the words that I use, the tempo, the whole bandwidth of communication to help somebody do it for themselves. So I like identifying as an educator to help people develop understanding and competence with what they're endeavoring in, and kind of a guide where uh, if you went on like a really cool tour somewhere, it's a tour guide kind of telling you a little bit about the history, about like the space, what you're seeing, things like that. But then when you're there for them to actually step out so that you can then experience it for yourself. And then once that experience is good, you'll step back in and then move along to the next thing. Uh, the last kind of an analogy, this just kind of hit me. Maybe this is dated, but like Jiminy Cricket. So like, and I think it's a Pinocchio reference. So I'm just kind of whispering in the person's ear on what the expectation is and what to do, but it's, it's them that has to do it.
0: Yes the 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 fairy godmother. It's yes. The, uh, I am the, the fairy dragon fairy in Mulan. Yeah, it's the the person who helps guide and shape, but can't do the the hero's journey. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. I mean, I think that there's so much that comes into. I mean, personal training is, or fitness, or exercise. They're all such a physical embodiment. It's like one of the last physical embodiments that we do in this world and obviously this is in in western society if you have a white collar job you're often working more with your mind than you are with your your body. And so I do think that there's a tremendous loss of discipline that we've lost, right? That we've just kind of let fall by the wayside over the past several decades because there's been this you know calories have never been cheaper and we've never had more affluence and we can do more with computers and we don't have to do as much manual labor which maybe is good on some regards but then we also have this dearth of self and physical discipline over our own bodies which is a very big part of who we are i mean we are mind we are spirit whatever that means to you but then we are also body and when you forget about that piece which you know many people go to the gym but many people also don't go to the gym when you forget about that piece there's there's got to be a tremendous loss of of self-mastery and self-discipline that you would have gained in a more physical society
1: absolutely i think about this a lot where um you know i could be in the gym doing a bench press or coaching someone to do a bench press and there's a, kind of just a granularity to it we're focused right there in the moment we're doing a bench press that's the hard thing And that's to some degree when it comes to conducting exercise, that's what you're trying to do. Okay, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. But if you keep zooming out and you think to yourself, why the hell am I doing this? And then keep zooming out like, what is my body meant for? Is it meant to bench press? And just thinking how for hundreds of thousands of years with the human species, but if if you just go to like nature... They're all living very physical lives. And movement is an intrinsic characteristic of life systems. And for a long time, we've just had to move a lot to stay alive. Procreate, stay alive. Rinse and repeat. And it's only in the last... There's arguments on when it actually kind of started. Some say, well, agriculture 10,000 years ago, that's when you know, we started having these issues. But if you just go back to um, the 1940s and 1950s when the transistor came out and we started getting screens, when screens and television screens and then you have more conveniences, technological conveniences, more screens, more screens, more screens, people move less and less and less because human beings don't have to. Um, Another part that I find really interesting, just thinking about like, and kind of what this brings me to is a lot of clients will come to me and a lot of people will come to me, and even just like talking shop with people, they say, I know exercise is important, but I'm lazy and I don't like exercising. And there's this general proclivity to be quote unquote lazy. And with that, there's then kind of a negative tonic connotation and a stigma applied to it. People start feeling guilty for feeling lazy. But what if it wasn't some negative characteristic of your own personality? What if it was just an intrinsic portion of life? Meaning resources uh, are very hard to get. Uh, If you're a hunter or gatherer, you're basically on a one-to-one ratio. It takes a day's worth of effort to get a day's worth of food. And you run that for a long time. And in order to survive in nature, you want to use energy to seek shelter, you want to use energy to battle, uh, to keep yourself alive. And then when possible, you want to be efficient with your energy in order to not consume in an excess. So if you don't have to move to do something, you don't want to do that. And so if there's no saber tooth s- tiger, then I don't feel like running. Nothing. Um, and so when it comes to then, you know, creating goals for people to exercise and not in like an arduous way. It's important that trainers have to kind of connect someone and understand and empathize that the client or the person is not lazy. There's just no need in that person's life to move. But there are caveats to this. So if you are doing something that you enjoy, that brings you a certain level of not even enjoyment, but a deeper feeling, which is satisfaction, a person will engage in unnecessary levels of physical effort in order to achieve the emotional state of satisfaction. And that can come from just the uh, endorphins they get at the end of a workout, or if they engage in a lot of effort, maybe they get the, the guy or the girl that they're interested in. There is some kind of satisfaction that they get from, do- from doing unnecessary levels of effort in a society where there's no need to move.
0: Yeah, I've, I I ah, I I love this so much. I mean, there's so much about human behavior and psychology and and the evolutionary process that we've gone along to the point where yeah, movement is not something that you typically desire to do for it. its it's for movement, you desire the outcome of it, which the outcome before was survival, procreation or not death, which is again survival. Um but we've gotten to this point where where it's completely shifted away from that. And so understanding the psychology behind the person to figure out, well, how do we get to that end goal and then motivate against that? I mean, that right there, if you can do that with yourself, if you can do that with others, you can unlock so much potential for getting people to do things not because they have they just felt like it in that day or they got enough willpower to do it, but because they're consistently motivated by the system itself and they just, they just keep going in that
1: positive feedback loop. Absolutely. Um, and this is where kind of like from a behavioral standpoint, it's fun to be strategic in how you can help someone uh, essentially do something that they want to do. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a client that is really inflexible and that's starting to become a limiting factor for them to increase in their strength or whatever it they is. They're, they're, they're just too tight. And so you say, hey, you should go ahead and do some yoga. Uh, yoga is great for flexibility. If you also added yoga to your routine, you'll feel better get to your goals faster. But then that person has some kind of a hang up. They're like, no, yoga's for wimps. I'm not a wimp. I don't want to do this yoga stuff. And then you say, well, actually, let's say you're talking to someone who's this big kind of like a macho person. Uh, you say, uh, you know, Diamond Dallas Page, this retired wrestler, like pro wrestler, has been able to uh, do great things with his body uh, because he does lots of yoga. Or if you can kind of find a way to connect that person in their core values to then the outcome that they may have some abrasion to, they'll go ahead and do it. Uh, Or there's a single person. You're like, listen, uh, lots of other single people also do yoga. Maybe you should go ahead and try that out. So it's like maybe you don't want to do the yoga, but it's like what other thing do you – what other of satisfaction do you get by participating in it um and you can if you find if you find the connect then there's really not a whole lot of resistance to doing the thing i i think it's
0: ridiculously insightful the words you said which is connect it to one of their core values because the minute you start believing something that's when you will affect your behavior you will change your behavior based on your beliefs and so the piece that you are doing is you're not changing their beliefs, right? You're not, you're not kind of saying, well, here's all the signs about movement and movement's actually really good for you. And yoga's a good example of that. And you really should do it because then you're gonna be able to lift more. That's all kind of hitting the, the logic centers, which are very difficult to process, especially when you have these core beliefs. Sometimes we have logic to kind of back up our beliefs, but beliefs are, are very, you know, you can be presented with so many facts. And if you, if you believe something, you won't change your opinion or it's harder to do so. But if you're able to tap in, identify, this is kind of what you're talking to. If you're able to identify something that they already believe and say, oh, by the way, here's some new information It aligns with your belief, it aligns with who you want to be, it aligns with how you identify and show up in the world, do you want to try this now? And, and the results that you can get, I mean, I, you can speak to it better than I can, but I know from my own personal experience that when I truly believe something, that's when I actually affect the change and, and, and do the effort that I, I want to model. So I I think that's f- ridiculously interesting to, I mean, you get to do it rep after rep after rep with client after client, year after year of learning, showing up, meeting the person, figuring out who they are, what their goals are, and what's that disconnect between where you want to be and the person you want to be versus the person you are today. And where's that disconnect and how can you help short circuit the gap between the two?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful experience when you can really help someone kind of that knows, as you mentioned, like logically, I should start leading a healthier life, better food, um, more activity. But they identify as an out-of-shape person, and they that creates just resistance to just getting better. Um, and then helping someone find their reason to do these things, and they start yielding results from it. It's kind of this beautiful journey of self-discovery through physical structured physical effort that is it's it's kind of becoming less and less just as everything is just getting even more automated um, you know if you just kind of keep running and extrapolate into the future let's keep removing calories from our daily life and I, this is where I kind of almost want to kind of go into AI with you AI and virtual reality and things of that nature augmented reality how we're just gonna be in chairs like kind of hooked up and our cognition is going to be elsewhere who knows but our physical body have you seen the movie wally yeah
0: Uh,
1: yeah yeah yeah. i always come back to that as like
0: the visual no it's not no it's not (laughs) yeah it's 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 an interesting time because we have more information than we've ever had we have more at our fingertips you could literally sit at your house and earn your money and have your food every meal delivered to you and you could probably stay in bed all day long and do all your work i mean it's just and then you also have your entertainment there and so it's the ability to have that true lazy air quotes lazy lifestyle um and not have to do any physical movement is it's there like you could have it now and we're just trending more and more in that direction so the gap between physical movement and shifting from this chore that I know I'm supposed to do, or it's going to affect my body, or I'm going to, you know, be in pain if I don't do it. And, and knowing that on one part of your brain and then connecting that with a desire to actually do it, I mean, maybe tying into AI, maybe tying into um, virtual reality, but also I feel like there's a lot of gamification in here in what you do which is you went back or going back to something you said earlier about making sure that they're not overstraining, but they're also not doing too little. And that's kind of what video games do in their best form is level one is very easy because you're new to the controls. You don't know how to move around. The bo- the, there are no bosses. They're just kind of minions. They're easy to kill. And then as you gain skill and as you level up, a video game, if if well balanced, is going to increase in complexity and difficulty as the hero increases in their abilities and skills. And so you have this constant tension of, oh, it's hard, but not so hard that I don't think I could do it. But if you put someone brand new into a video game they've never played it before and you put them on the final boss, they're going to feel like it's impossible, they're going to have no idea how to do it or or how to how to win. So kind of getting into that aspect of gamification, we can kind of tie it into where technology shows up in AI, but how do you how do you think about gamification in
1: what you do with your clients? I like playing video games. I uh, that is that is my leisure time activity. I'm not crazy competitive. I like just slow open world games where I'm just going to get stuck in the environment, right? So that's my jam. And because I have a reasonable amount of experience, because I have an excessive amount of experience playing video games, uh, I kind of do try and gamify or run an analog of games in in training, meaning it starts with uh, the client has a certain amount of knowledge and let's say the person has no familiarity with structured exercise, gym, things like that we're going to have to spend time kind of like a tutorial where we're just going to have to just show you what is the lay of the land. This is that section. This is that section. And with each portion, like if you download a game on your phone, the beginning of it is the easiest thing. You just have to go through menus and there's high amounts of praise. We're going to give you 400 gems for just clicking this tons of immediate feedback on your doing great for pressing buttons. I told you to press. And that starts to prime the person. And then over time, as their competence on one level of complexity gets established, it starts rough, you keep at it, and then it becomes autonomous, then it's time to increase in complexity. And there is a type of momentum that you'll see if you kind of start where someone is at, kind of in another way, if someone's used to playing first-person shooters or uh, role-playing games, they're kind of already used to the the nuts and bolts of it, and so they can go play another one. They don't have to start at the tutorial. They're going to go right into their level, and so I kind of have to assess, is this person just a total novice, and I'm going to have to kind of break things down very easily at the beginning, or are they coming in a little bit more intermediate, and then we'll kind of show you what this game is like. It reminds me of this interesting study uh, relating to the difficulty of games, and a of the player's uh, proclivity to persistence. That is, gave someone a game uh, that is unbeatable. You're just going to die over and over and over again. Some people, if you give them an impossible game, at some point they opt out. They're like, I don't want to do this. It's too frustrating. They put down, walk away. Other individuals will get more serious. If they're seated, they'll stand and they'll kind of get into it. They'll just, if they're seated, sometimes they'll like lean forward to kind of get into it. So some people, when they're given these unachievable tasks, they will go ahead and double down. Most people, if you give them a level of difficulty, you say, hey, you're going to go ahead and do this and you make it seem simple and then it's really hard. They'll get frustrated and then they'll opt out. So if you're playing a video game and it's too easy or let's say it's just easy and it's kind of difficult for you to do, you'll persist at it. And then on your own, on the person's own decision, they will increase the difficulty to medium. So if you give someone a level of challenge that they can do, and they have confidence that they can do it, they will automatically increase difficulty. And so when it comes to training, you try and take that same behavior like, hey, listen, here are the nuts and bolts of what we're trying to do. You offer demonstration, whatever it is. And I'm really good at demonstrating. So when I say you're going to do this, da, 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 I make it look easy because I'm really good at one rep of something. And then the person gets <laughs> in there. So that's their expectation, right? They see me do it. I explain it. Sometimes they get in there and I'm like, okay, knee, hip, things like that. Start giving some like alignment challenges. And that's actually kind of hard, but they know what they're supposed to do. So I step back from that and I let them marinate. You give them their two key points. And let them marinate in figuring it out. Let's say they get it 80% correct. Go into the next set, just give them a little bit more of a tip. But then they figure it out and they have a lot of built-up momentum to be like, yeah, I can probably do more. And they can then find find ways of pushing themselves. So I'm really happy that you've talked or kind of mentioned about the gamification of exercise or the gamification of things. Because um, also with like augmented reality, I kind of have a hunch that the only real way that a future technological society is to kind of gamify life. Have Did you ever play? Did you ever have like a Nintendo Wii? Yes. Yep. Do you remember Wii Tennis? That I do. <laughs> my, my body it probably was...
0: still remembers it too.
1: It was amazing how much people that would like, oh, I don't play video games or, you know, some dad or whatever, and they're going to play their kids video games, get massively competitive and physically active with those games. Um, there was this other kind of, there are a couple of them that were kind of out, it's kind of used augmented reality. There was like a Pokemon game where you could use AR see your, the environment around you, see some kind of Pokemon off in the distance, you had to go and then collect it. And I think, I, I mean, I'm going to mess up on all, any of these statistics, but you know that game was out and it definitely got weird when people were just like you know, going to cemeteries in the middle of the night to try and get some kind of a thing. But a lot of people were walking around their neighborhoods, albeit not really in reality and not just to kind of smell, you know, smell the grass and all that stuff. But they were moving a lot. So I think that whoever can figure out a way to AR up in glasses or something like that to gamify reality will help people um, enjoy engaging in real life, even though, as a cost, it's not real life. But at least they'll be active. Do you think there's a loss
0: in people being motivated by some digital scoreboard versus intrinsically wanting to do it or doing it through willpower? Not at all. Tell me more. So the action itself, regardless of motivation, is the reward, not necessarily the
1: exercising the muscle of willpower? I think the net win, assuming someone, let's say, uh, through their AAR um blanketed world significantly increases the amount of time that they are outside, still in sunlight, still engaging in meaningful physical activity. Um, even if the, the 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 visual reality is not actually how it is, I think as a net win for physical and mental health will exceed the um yeah, just the romantic Essence of being in nature. Um, Yeah, I think I think so. Um, Human beings. Aside from the vast majority of animals. Have an expressed dissatisfaction with reality. And that's through various cultures. Wanting to taking mind altering substances. Um, I mean, including caffeine. Uh, Just all cultures for all of time. Have just tried to inebriate themselves um, to gain, either gain insight to what reality could be like if you have a lot of, you know, hallucinogenics or things like that, um, or kind of remove themselves from how challenging life can be, you know, and then that goes the other direction to kind of, you know, using controlled substances for not good stuff. But that's what human beings do. Um, and now we're just going to be able to use technology to you know, alter it that much more. There is a whole lot of other weird things that would happen societally if we could not share the same reality um, visually or anything like that. And I'm curious kind of like what your ideas are on that. But um, if, if that's what it takes to keep people healthy and give them sunshine, then that's what it takes. I think it's a refreshing perspective because for so long,
0: the nerve has been turn off the video game console, go outside and play, right? That's, that's what parents said to their kids. That's, you know, turn off the television, turn off the screens. And I think there is, there's a lot of truth to that. But I think the fact that we're now approaching a point where you can lightly enhance reality rather than having to create a fake reality, such as a virtual world or a video game screen or or a static world these screens and these environments, these worlds have been endlessly immersive, right? That's why video games are so addicting. And that's why TV is, 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 you know, enjoyable because it creates this entire world with these characters that you relate with and there's drama and it's exciting and it's more exciting than your real life. And so to now have technology start getting to the point where it can take those positive things about attention capturing that, that we've seen in screens and video games for so long. And then to overlay it on top of reality. It's almost like the redemption arc of technology being the the motivator to get us back out and get us into our bodies and get us moving. It's, you know, the we maybe was was before its time, but that's an example of people tapping into the power of play, of video games, of gamification, and saying, Hey, here's this thing and then people wildly respond to being engaged with their physical bodies in, in a way that's that's they n- never would have Done before and it's probably even above if uh you know you rewind 60 years and there were no screens and were no game consoles so yeah i mean i think from an ai perspective from a, a virtual reality or a mixed reality uh perspective augmented reality i think technology has finally gotten to the point where they can simulate or create overlays that are as compelling as reality and as we start a continued approach more and more of that. I do think we get this blended universe where it's, you know, reality, but then you have modifiers on top of it. And hopefully, therefore, your betterment for society's betterment. Maybe they're also, I guess, for the potential detriment or entertainment. But I think generally speaking, people know what they should do, they know what they want to do. There's just a gap between their beliefs and the actions, but being able to shorten that gap through different means, modalities, overlays, gamification personal AI coaches, whatever it is, I think
1: is a, is a net win if we're able to do it. And we're trending in that direction. Uh, do you know who's like making different glasses like that? Like, I know that there are like these math, like you can get like your meta quest and that's like a big goggles and things like that, but you know, something that would be more low profile. So I think
0: the best one out there, um, well, I don't know if there's anyone that's a best one out there actually. So Ray bands actually came out with some recently and they're very innocuous. Um, so I don't think they do a whole lot, but they might do uh, like text messages, maybe. So you can see if someone texts you, which is not my idea of fun. Um, maybe GPS, and I think also maybe being able to take photos. So no one's really done it since Google Glass did it 10 years I ago. I remember that. everyone last that, yeah. But I think that the technology progressively gets easier and cheaper. And if we're able to do it with virtual reality, which we have with meta and and Apple is now stepping into the, the, the foray of like full virtual virtual reality headsets and goggles that are expensive. If we're able to do that and do that effectively, it's going to be kind of the cheaper kid sister to do overlays, especially if it's just contextual information. So there's nothing out that's really compelling as of right now, but there's also so at CES this year, uh, which has just happened last week, someone came out with a, a new hardware device called the Rabbit R1, and it took the tech world by storm. It's very polarizing. So basically, it's a, it's a little handheld, maybe the size of an old Game Boy, like a, a Nintendo DS or something, and it's got a screen. There's no apps. There's no nothing you can click on. There's just some physical buttons on the side, and there's a camera that can face towards your face or face away from you. And the whole point of this is it's an AI first tool. So just like the iPod was a dedicated tool for playing music and the Game Boy was a dedicated physical device for playing games, this is a dedicated physical device for interacting with AI. And so the reason I think it's interesting and analogous is because this is meant to be, it's not meant to replace your phone or replace anything else, but it has a dedicated push button where you can talk to it. And then it You're talking to an AI and it can look at what's in your fridge and then suggest dinner recipes. It can look at a map and then highlight the the route for you for where you want to go. You can ask it questions like you would any AI. So like anything that you could imagine a somewhat competent human being able to do, you now have in a box. And so the reason I think that this is interesting and compelling is because while this isn't necessarily overlaid with glasses, you can point at anything in the world. You could point at a sign and say, you know, what's this Japanese sign say? And we'll translate it. And so we've been able to do these things with phones, but phones are so distracting because they can do so much. There's this infinite portal of entertainment and friends and communication and photos and all this stuff. And so having a dedicated device for it kind of removes us from all that distracting noise and gets us back into interacting with reality, interacting with things that we see, interacting with different objects. And so I think to tie all back to what you're saying. I think we are going to see a proliferation of devices that kind of bridge the gap between where you are physically, uh, maybe in, in in your virtual reality, whatever it is, bridging that space with a broader reality, which is maybe meat space, right? the the actual world around us, or maybe the the public web or the public metaverse. Did you just call it meat space? It is. Meat space, yeah. Like it's meat, a, a like, st- like, like, like meat. Hardware. That's physical, amazing! Oh yeah. God! <laughs> it's wetware versus uh hardware versus software. Yeah. So it's uh I'm a big sci-fi head. So, Meat Space I think was uh, William Gibson probably first popularized the term. Um,
1: but yeah, Meat Space. <laughs> M e a t. Oh, so so that's uh like um like from uh, Necromant not na- uh uh not Necromancer. Um, Cryptonomicon. Cryptonomicon. There was also another William Gibson book I read I read a while ago. Oh, it'll come to me, but um, he's, he's the guy. Neuromancer, he's, he's a... neuromancer, neuromancer. That's right. Um, I'll tell you one thing. It when it when it comes to it, it I, I do not like running. If I'm running, it's likely because someone's chasing me. But if I could wear glasses, Ray-Ban or what have you, that had like down the street, a bunch of coins like, uh, you know, like uh, like Mario Brothers coins, I'll go ahead and run. And if the whole if there was like a leaderboard amongst my friends on who could accumulate the most coins from being out there, I mean, I will run until my heart explodes because that would just be so fun. Um, You know, if there could be just some some type of engagement like that, you know, what's interesting is for people that want to do like long distance running and they like get tired. So I hear, uh, you know, they'll be like, okay, I'm going to see a pole in the front. And then I'll just run to the poll. and they just will kind of like create these like micro goals for themselves. And, um, you know, if, if, and when the technology gets good enough to cruise around that way, I think it is, uh, various forms of AI and I'm, I'm way on the outside of that. But if you just kind of think of, um, having an intuitive chatbot plus, visuals that you can kind of pay attention to. I think that's really kind of going going to save humanity because there's, you know, having fun with some apocalyptic things like obviously big things like nuclear war, but even going out with a whimper, like in population decline, there's always in the background of that is, uh, we have just more technology. And when you have something digital to do something physical, uh, then the body tends to decay, and there is a mind-body relationship. and I don't think that um, the sheer amount of bandwidth that's going to be required to operate you know some of these things, either external devices or internal devices, really will require um, a fit body to maximize those things. Um, I mean, you you've definitely felt it if you haven't engaged in some level of exercise. You just emotionally and psychologically feel like crap. If you just go out there and just kind of hustle, um, do some work, you physically and mentally feel better. So I do think that outside of all this thing, like you just have to be physically fit and healthy. uh, If you want to engage cognitively in just all the different types of technologies that can and will help us day to day, it's really important to have um, a healthy physical body in order to then have a healthy physical mind. What's that
0: look like for someone who hasn't reached out to you, right? So kind of the the earlier step in that decision-making process, if someone's gotten to the point where they say, you know what, I'm looking for a personal trainer, I'm gonna start reaching out to people, I'm gonna start talking to Mark, I'm gonna talk to other people, that's that's one level of decision-making power that's already happened. But if you're someone like me, who's kind of in that precursor step, yes, I've worked out for longest stretch is maybe six months. I've done that a few times in my life, and I always end up getting to the point where I really enjoy this, This I feel better, and then I get to the point where it's like, ah, oh, well, it takes time to go, and then I slip, and I decline, and then I don't get back to it. So how, how does someone get to that point where they make that commitment, that shift, that identity change to be that person who says, yeah, I'm going to spend three hours a week or whatever the, the amount is doing things with my physical body and not necessarily getting results from, you know, that I could have written a, more emails during that time or whatever it is. So how, how do people get to that point where they, they make that commitment to make that change? And maybe you can help me make that change.
1: Uh, oftentimes there's just a history of, uh, failure, um, where maybe you've tried to do certain things, like go upstairs and now it's kicking your ass or handle luggage and now it's kicking your ass. You end up spending a lot more time talking to doctors than talking to other people. You start getting this sense that something is not great. Um, and then people kind of extrapolate long-term. You're like, okay, well, where am I trending? I mean, I definitely don't, don't want to go down that route. So a lot of people, will have some type of rock-bottom experience, either it's dramatic or not too dramatic, that just kicks them in the ass and they're like, okay, I've got to do something about it. Um, Reaching out to a personal trainer is rarely a first line of defense. Most of the time, someone's going to try and peruse these options themselves. Um, So maybe they'll go to a gym and get a membership and try and figure that out. Uh, They'll usually talk to a lot of their friends um, or families that have kind of engaged in it and sought success and say, Hey, listen, what can I do? Uh, so if we want to get really cheesy about it or kind of interesting and psychological, it's like, how do you go from not thinking about engaging in exercise or being uh, averse to think about exercise or whatever physical change to becoming kind of like a gym rat? Like, what is that arc? Like, typically you go through different stages. You start pre-contemplative, meaning you would just haven't thought about it as an option or you're against it. Um, So I have some family members that maybe are not doing that well physically, and I'm like, have you thought about exercise? And they're like, don't insult me. I don't want to do that. Don't ever tell me that again. Like, they just don't want to hear it. And then at some point, though, you you, you go from being pre-contemplative to contemplative. You just start thinking about it. Um, You have these quiet moments playing kind of like, what if? So it's like the pros and cons are about even. You can see how engaging in that change, going and exercising or eating more healthily can have benefits to you, but you're also like, "Ah, but I don't know how to exercise. I don't want to get yelled at. I'm gonna be embarrassed. um, I failed like ninety times." so you just kind of go back and forth. If someone then gets to a point where they're like "I should lean in, they get to a, a a preparation stage. so let's say you have someone that went from like exercise is not for me. I don't want to exercise. Don't ever tell me about exercise. Just leave me alone. And then someone just says, well, just think about it. And just having a thought can be kind of pernicious. And so they start just kind of thinking about it. And maybe it starts ending up on their social media feed. Uh, They're hearing their friends, family members, or coworkers talk about, oh, I was at the gym the other day. And now they're just like, oh, tell me a little bit. So they have a curiosity. And they could sit and contemplate for maybe you know, an hour before they start making an action, or 10 years. They could, they could be on the fence for a long time. But then they push forward and they start applying some level of effort, preparing for the change that is happening. So if they say to themselves, I'm going to start running, some preparation could be purchasing running shoes or an interval timer app. Um, if they're going to want to start exercising, they start looking at people exercising on social media or they purchase a program there is some very low effort way a person will attempt to prepare for the behavior. Uh, So for me, I I want to be better at cooking, um, actually cooking food that I like to make. And so the way that I prepare to get on this kind of cooking spree is buying cookbooks and then getting rid of the mixed mashed, Uh, mixed-matched Tupperware that I have and like buying ready-to-go Tupperware. So I get super excited about like purchasing exercise clothing or purchasing like cookbooks to go ahead and try out. So that's my preparation. Uh, And then you start. So maybe you've done your first exercise session or you've done your first yoga class. You've made your first meal. Now you're in what's called an action stage. You're actually doing the thing that you set out to do. This stage is incredibly brittle. So a lot of people start, even with me in some ways, like I'll be like, I should read more. I want to read more. I should read 12 books a year and I'll buy a book, get through a one paragraph, and then the whole habit starts to kind of like fall apart. Um, and so to persist into making it a habit, whatever it is, meal prepping, going to the gym, going to yoga, a habit, meaning you're not really thinking about it, it takes roughly six months of consistency, but most importantly, to create a habit, you need to get to an inflection point where you have an option of doing something that you're wanting to do or doing something that you don't want to do. And you have chosen to avoid happy things that you normally want to do, to do the Call it unhappy thing that you know you should do. Can I, can I share with you the a brief story kind of about effort. that? Of course. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. So I had a friend who, um, this is in my 20s, and he was just living an unhealthy lifestyle, going to the bar pretty frequently and hanging out with his friends all at the bar. I mean, we were in our 20s. Like, you're just everything's going to revolve around alcohol, right, at, at that period in time. Everything revolves around alcohol. Social life. Um, dating, all that stuff. And he just just got really out of shape, um, really just like unhappy and, you know, wanted to make a change, but he also really loved his friends and his friends loved him. They would just always hang out, but it would also be at the bar. So he'd start exercising, um, during the day, things of that nature. And then Friday night would come and it's like, well, I'm going to go ahead and go with my friends to the bar. So you still kind of like had, yes, definitely lots of good points, but still certain behaviors that he wanted to fix. And then he, uh, he got to the point of like scheduling one of his workouts, his workout times, increasing his exercise frequency on Friday night. And that's when he needed to kind of go to the gym on Friday night to do these things. So it became like Friday night and he's ready to go to the gym. And his friends called him and says, hey, listen, we haven't seen you for a long time. We really miss you. We really want you to kind of come and hang out with us and catch up. We love you so much. We're going to be at this bar Friday night. We would love for you, our great friend, to come and join us so we can have a great time like the good old days. And he really wanted to do that. So he's at this inflection point of continuing down this path of kind of, you know, difficulty of exercising, going to the gym several days a week in order for him to continue getting his results or kind of get that social health that he also loves so much. And it's kind of balanced. Which way are you going to go? And so he decided, he told his friends, like, listen, I love you so much, but I can't hang out with you or I'm not going to hang out with you because I have chosen to do this other thing. And so for people that are currently exercising and they're wondering, how do you know if you've kind of like made it as a habit it's these inflection points. You have an option to do other things that you want to do, and you're still choosing to do the more disciplined route, even if that creates a social pain of not being with your friends, a certain emotional pain of not doing certain activities that you previously enjoyed doing. And, and, and that's okay. That kind of has to happen.
0: Yeah, I think it's... The, the, the social inflection point And whether it's social or emotional or environmental, but getting to that point where the new habit, which is uncomfortable, becomes there's too much of a cognitive break if you let go of that habit and go back to the old behavior, that inflection point is when you've quote-unquote made it. And I think shaping in that way, you said six months to kind of form a habit, but I think for me at least, the better way to do it is once it becomes a break from who you are if you don't do the new thing, right? Once that behavior and that habit has become so ingrained in you that you feel uncomfortable by not doing it. And another way to phrase it is, okay, you're doing it, but it doesn't take willpower to do it anymore. And just pushing through and, and continuing to stay consistent until you achieve that point uh, is, is I think, a very helpful framing for me because, I, you know, like like all humans, I start things and I don't finish them. And that is something that I actively want to work on for, for this year.
1: There's an identity component to it where, um, like if for me, I would say I run, uh, I go running, but I don't tell people I am a runner. Cause I don't identify with it. Like I'll do this thing. Um, but I am a weightlifter for damn sure. Uh, that's how I identify. And, Yeah, it is interesting how it takes a while of um, pursuing the the task through consistency and saying no when you're on those kind of split paths to one thing in order to keep doing the other thing. Yeah, and at some point, it just becomes you. Um, You know, a big part of like identity is knowing oneself, but our identity is also nestled within the uh, social structure around us. We're social creatures. So like my friend that would go to the bar is like cheers. Everybody knew him. And so they all kind of incorporated into his identity and he didn't know anybody at the gym. And so he just felt like an outsider. Like this is not me imposter. But at some point he knew the front desk person. He became familiar with the other bros. You go with the head nods and the fist bumps. And so he then he had that new community. And so because he developed a certain level of competence, he was consistent in going. He said nay to a lot of the temptation um, going down to the dark side, even though they have lightning, but still kind of the dark side. Um, and he kind of developed a little bit of a social life in and around his pursuit of his goals. So when I'm coaching clients, I tell them pretty quickly that you can't lone wolf this. Like I, I am going to be one part of it, the, the social uh, fabric. It kind of helps to incorporate this thing in your new identity, but you're going to kind of have to make friends at some point. And if he or she lives in a household that's not really supportive, it's like, okay, you're going to go do that healthy thing, but we're going to eat tater tots for an hour. Um, Or, you know, people are just not in in support, in active support emotionally, instrumentally, educationally. However, it makes that action phase kind of fall apart. So it's really important that people... Find support, um, whether it's online in community chats or whatever, uh, or in person, especially in person. That's going to be a really big component. Make your goals social.
0: Uh, that's phenomenal. I mean, I, I've always gone the lone wolf approach, so maybe maybe I'm due for a change, identity change, and finally sticking to it. But I I, I think th- there's so much of our behavior on both directions that is social in nature, right? The the families eating tater tots versus your new your new bros at the at the gym for me one of the things that i wrestle with is i don't know if you're a fan of brian johnson or even know who he is um he's the original founder of um he's a billionaire tech tech billionaire who's who's spent the past couple years focusing on health hacking but one of the things that he is known for kind of coining is this term of of sad behavior which is self-aided destruction and so he uses very harsh language to kind of hammer home the point but it is extremely socially acceptable in fact socially uh necessary in some regards to do these things which are destructive to yourself and one of the examples he talks about is alcohol alcohol consumption is this thing where oh if you're not drinking And you're with all your friends at dinner you're kind of you know the 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 black pariah the 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 social pariah the black sheep that's that's being left out um same thing with you know eating out or fast food or overeating these are all things that are kind of acceptable behavior if not encouraged behavior and we can argue if it's encouraged by marketing and marketing has you know perverted our opinions and our beliefs but it's this thing where you now have pressure from your peers generally speaking. To continue doing that bad behavior with staying up late. That's another one, right? Binge anything, right? Binge Netflix. And so I've I've found that this concept is very helpful in trying to identify, is this a thing that society or my society, my group, my friends say is acceptable, but it's really not a good behavior? Or is this something that I actually think is a good behavior and I want to do it Um, and trying to break from that social social bucket, but it, it, it's very interesting to look at the behavior change for an individual is often predicated on the environment, the social,
1: social group that they have while trying to make a change. That's the make it or break it. Um, I, for, for a lot of different things, I am also a, uh, a lone wolfer and, um, you know, in part because there are, uh, I just like certain things to be done a particular way. And that particular way happens to be my way. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of ego in that aspect of things. And and while I have yielded some level of success, like I'll, I'll give you an example. So like just being in like school and like middle school, high school, all that stuff I did poorly. And that's just because I didn't like the manner by which I was learning. So I was very disruptive and because then I was, Board, I was disruptive. I got low grades for a while. I identified as a bad student. And then I get into adulthood and I just then realize, well, I can kind of blaze whatever trail that I want to do. Like, Like, like it, I can kind of do things the way I want to do. And when I went to school, I got an online education and I flourished in an online setting because I was a trainer and an educator for personal trainers during the day. So I definitely got a lot of actual, tactile, practical practice. But they just gave me like a bulk of work for the week. And however I kind of got to the end, I can go ahead and like fill it in. And so I I very much kind of enjoyed that freedom. Um, And so when I had the opportunity to then expand my personal training business, going from kind of like just a hobby uh, that kind of sprouted during the pandemic while I was also teaching to wanting to like make an actual thing about it, I knew that I had this thing of like, well, I'm going to go ahead and figure it out. Uh, But I knew lots of people that already figured it out. And so I went the totally other direction. And I actually booked one-on-one recorded Zoom calls with a number of like my friends and people that I didn't actually know that had successful businesses for me to just pepper them with all kinds of questions. I'm like, I really want to do this thing. I have the confidence to know that I can do it. I just don't have like the skills to do it. And so I relied heavily on my support structure. And I, I could not have achieved the various successes that I have in the past um, without that support. But it took me being aware that I can't do it myself. If I want to do this, I need to make it like a family event. And Everybody came out and just basically were very nice, giving me lots of, you know, uh, marketing models to use, telling me their financials, which a lot of people kind of like want to keep to themselves. But, um, you know, so I think just even me being successful as a solopreneur, uh, I needed to lean on others to kind of help, you know, to help me out. And it was great. And everybody was super excited to do so
0: the power in community still thrives even in this digital world that we live
1: in market. Yeah, do you find, do you find in, um, you know, entrepreneurs in tech spaces or other ways that is there like, I don't know, a reluctance by founders to want to ask for help or, you know, is it kind of like the other way where founders are wanting to get lots and lots of help? It's both.
0: And I'll explain what I mean. So I went through 500 Startups, which is an accelerator program. And in it, you are in a cohort. And the cohort was 30 companies or so. So 60 founders on, uh, roughly speaking. And I formed some of the deepest, longest term partnerships, friendships that I have ever made while there. And we shared everything. We shared, you know, talked about investors and how we're pitching and what our decks look like and our metrics and how to hire and, and all these different things. So there. And this, this showed up, you know, time and time again, whether I was in co-working spaces or people in my sector or not in my sector looking for advice and feedback. So there's kind of this covert aspect of founders definitely want to ask each other questions, they want to learn from each other, they want to know. But in stark opposition to that is there's this competition and there's this external experience or, or posturing that needs to happen. And so this shows up very much so when you're fundraising, because you want to craft the most beautiful narrative about how your company is going to change the world and how you're crushing it at everything. And so there's this aspect of you that needs to project this confidence and this competence and the success so that you attract investors, so that they invest in you, so then you can actually make those things happen. But then there's this contrast of having no fucking clue as to what you're doing feeling like every day, everything could collapse and fail, and you want to relate or connect to people on that regard. And so there, there is kind of this, this balance between, do I trust you enough and know you enough that I can let you in and show you how insecure I am and how deathly afraid of failure I feel and how close to the edge I feel like I'm living? But if you're not across that threshold and cross that line from a founder perspective, if I meet you at a networking event or a this or a that, and again, this predominantly shows up in venture backed companies because you have that pressure, if it's bootstrap, you can be honest and there's no external founders that are judging you for it. But if you're not across that threshold and you are potentially a venture capital backed startup you're just going to kind of gush and give you all the the best metrics and the rosy lenses um, to keep that external image up. And same thing with social media too. So there's that kind of cognitive dissonance of like, this is where I feel I am, but then this is what I'm projecting to the world. And I feel shitty because they're not the same thing. And that's, I don't know if that's essential or not, but if you're playing the VC and the the, the fundraising game, it is kind of essential, um, which is which is unfortunate because there's a lot of strength in the community aspect of, of being with peers and being able to actually be authentic about the pain and the problems that you're dealing with.
1: Yeah. You know, that's just like this tricky thing in, um, you know, this idea of like small L leadership where I think it's important to expose a certain amount of vulnerability, um, to the people that you are leading. So they see you as like an authentic, real person, um, but not so much vulnerability that they won't, you know, apply enough trust in you. So I guess like there's this so interesting They quit their balance. jobs and go find something else. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like, oh, he's telling me how worried he is all the time. You know, it's like, uh, but it's like this interesting balance between um, vulnerability and strength that is just, uh, just conceptually, it's interesting how they're almost antithetical yet required in order to, you know, inspire people to work hard, you know, for you and for the, you know, the larger value.
0: Yeah. It's, it's through strength, you find vulnerability through vulnerability, you find strength. It's kind of the, you you need both, but over index on one or the other, and it can be disastrous.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of like when you're co-founder and I'm having him do a fourth set and, uh, and I'm like, you're going to do this. And he looks at me like, man, do I have to do that? I'm like, I take no pleasure in making you do this, but it's something that needs to be done. That's like that balance, uh, of, uh, of, le- of, yeah, of, of leadership. Rich, I, I would take
0: pleasure in, in making you suffer and sweat. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's pretty great. It's pretty great.
0: Mark, I feel like we've gone for hours, but I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk through everything here. If people want to connect with you, learn more about you, learn, learn more about how you
1: operate, or maybe even show up for a session in Dublin, where should they go to learn more? You can go to my website at www.branskyfitness.com or find me on Instagram. My handle is trainer, trainer guy, all one word. Trainer, trainer guy. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark.